Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Smooth out the onboarding process. Again, we're talking to companies and agencies where it's from the moment I want to work with a freelancer until I can actually start working. It's you know a four to six week process. So how do you smooth that out? And then, you know, set the right expectation. If this is someone you want to work with and you think they're great at what they do, slowly increase how much you're working with them and create some level of, hey, the next three months, I'm going to need you for X, Y, Z. Is that going to work out? Unless you don't have a choice. Don't surprise them when they, hey, I really need you now. Put us in higher priority compared to your other customers. It's a business they're running, just like we're running a business. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. And that's a fancy way of saying that we go out to the market on behalf of our clients to tee up meetings and keep the pipeline full, no matter what's going on on their end. We do this through a proprietary approach, which we call relationship sales at scale. What makes this different is that instead of going in cold, we secure relationships by identifying and tastefully reaching out to the sorts of prospects that are already likely to talk to our clients based on personal and business commonalities as well as existing relationships. So if you'd like to learn more about what we're up to and schedule a free consultation, you can do that by going to saleschema.com. Again, that's saleschema.com. Today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Shahar Yerez. Shahar is the co-founder and CEO of Stoke, which is an on-demand talent platform empowering companies to adopt a hybrid workforce model that scales as quickly and efficiently as needed. The platform provides a streamlined interface to make sure all your quote-unquote non-employees are operating according to policies, legal constraints, and workforce classification. And excitingly, in 2021, Stoke was acquired by Fiverr for $110 million just 15 months after coming out of stealth mode. Beyond that, Jahar is a tech scene veteran and serial entrepreneur in Israel and Silicon Valley and has 20 years of executive experience in engineering, product, and marketing under his belt at companies like HP, VMware, and Kenshu. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Shahar. We talked a lot about the freelance model and how working models have changed, you know, in the the past, present, and future, especially with everything that the world's experienced, you know, as of 2020, which is a topic we've covered in different ways before. But what I think is really interesting about about Shahar's company, Stoke, and the way that he's thinking about it is basically how do you bring that model in a way that can expand into the enterprise space. You know, how, if you are a large company, how can you think about the way in which you hire employees in the freelance world? So I think that if you are an agency and you're employing more than a few freelancers, you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode in terms of how you can attract the right talent, keep them engaged so you don't have to keep retraining new people, respect your freelancers the right way, and really get the most bang for your buck uh, out of a freelance engagement. Beyond that, we talked about what it was like to build and sell a company for nine figures, uh, which I think is always interesting uh, no matter who we're talking to. So without further ado, please give it up for Shahar Yerez. Shahar, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, yeah. And so so there's so much to get into with this episode, but you know, to sum it up, I think we're going to be talking about the past, present, and bigger than that, the future of work. 
my background, you know, was starting this business in like 2014. I worked in essentially startups or small agencies before coming out of college and then started this company in 2014. We were a remote business when it was weird to be a remote business. We would lose clients because we talked to people and they'd be like, what are you just some, some dudes in a coffee shop? Right. And then they tell us to go away. And then it started to get more and more acceptable to work with global talent all over the place. And then of course, with 2020, you know, like everyone else. So I, I feel like a little bit like I'm a fish in water with this stuff. It's why it's really interesting to talk to people like yourself uh, and so on. So let me give you the floor. I'd love to learn about your background and yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I greatly agree with what you're saying. You know, my, when I started Stoke, you know, just before that, you know, I spent a few years in California and I, I started noticing these businesses that were built as a kind of remote first business. Uh, back in 2018, there were, I think, there were like 2,800 businesses in the United States without offices. And then it was like, you know, you, you started seeing this movement of people realizing globalization, the world is flat, I can hire people wherever they are, why do I need people to show up in the office, why do I need to pay rent? There are a lot of different motivations. When we started talking about Stoke, and well, if you're not bringing people into your office, well, might as well start hiring people as freelancers because there's no real difference anymore. And when we pitched it to VCs back in 20, again, 18, end of 2018, early 2019, most of the VCs we spoke to back then told us, you know, that's never going to be the case. People will always show up to the office. People will show up five days a week to the office. It's just the way things are. It's just a FUD. Remote work will never pick up. And I think this is... It's exactly what we're still seeing. And we're kind of seeing this early adopters realizing the world has changed. It's not coming back to where it was. It's not just COVID. It's the new generation of work. People want to work differently. It's you can get execution done better with just reader organizations. But a lot, you know, I'd say 80% of companies are still in that. Can we still get everybody to work the same way they worked before? That's not a sustainable approach these days. And so that's just to react to what you were saying. My background, thanks for asking, 20 years in the industry, computer science grad, spent a few years in startup companies, then large corporates, companies like Mercury Interactive, uh, got acquired into HP, spent a few years in California, uh, product and engineering roles, moved to VMware in 2010, was part of the founding team of a new business unit. We built a pretty healthy business over the next four years, was involved with acquisition, product strategy, go-to-market strategy. Moved back to Israel in 2013, uh, joined a company called Kenshu, a product marketing growth for the company for a few years. And about three years ago, February of 2019, founded Stoke, ended up selling it to Fiverr within about two and a half years from incorporation to getting acquired, which was a wild ride, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And can you give kind of like the high level, you know, the one liner on Stoke and just for context for everybody and what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've noticed, you know, part of the changes in the workforce we're talking about, we noticed that we're kind of hitting an inflection point of, you know, a perfect storm where the workforce is changing. And we started talking about it in 2018. On the one hand, you saw companies needing to move a lot faster and respond a lot faster to market opportunities and risk. And so companies needed to be able to act quicker, make a decision and execute against it. One of the biggest problems for companies was they're very, they have a very rigid structure. So if you want to change anything, it's like, do you have the right headcount? Do you have the budget? It's like, everything was very complex. And so how do, how do you move them to become more flexible? That's, that's on their end. Uh, On the talent side, we saw that, you know, the new generation coming into the workforce, millennial Gen Z want different 
contract, right? They weren't looking for full-time employment anymore. They were looking for flexibility. They were looking for remote work. And, you know, two things that enabled it was were cloud computing and internet. I can connect from anywhere to execute work. I don't need to show up to an office anymore. And so if you kind of think about it, a lot of different forces came in together to kind of start leading companies towards, you know, employees are not sticking around for as long as they used to, under two years. Companies need flexibility. They can't forecast their spend anymore. Three large economic crises in, in two decades. All of those have led us to the understanding that companies will be relying more and more on freelance workforce. Now, at that point in time, there were a lot of marketplaces for freelancers, but all of them were kind of built for a transactional. It's like swipe your credit card and get someone to do your kid's birthday video. But if you think about how corporates operate, it's like you need to have hierarchies and teams, departments, budget, approvals, compliance, taxation. And how do you take and build an orchestration layer that allows the company to access any talent anywhere but still protect the companies, the company's data, the company's tax, the company's budget, the company's approvals, the company's IP. And that's what we set out to build with Stoke. We built a platform for companies to be able to build their talent cloud over time, allow anybody in the company to start working with freelancers without having to go through you know, months and months of negotiations and internal bureaucracy. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I can, and I can only imagine the work it took to get all those pieces figured out and the compliance and everything like that involved. And it sounds like you're, you're reaping the, the rewards of that and congrats. There's so much to dig into there. I think the first thing you were talking about with millennials and, and Gen Z and so on, it, now, you know, at this stage of our, of our business, my career, probably you too, like working remotely is, is awesome and so on. And, you know, there's so much opportunity to it and all the good stuff that we always talk about. What I can't imagine, though, is being, you know, in 2010 and having that situation, right? Coming to New York and like working internships and rubbing elbows. Like, I can't imagine where I would be without that experience. So I just love to hear, like, what what are you seeing out there with millennials and, and not probably Gen Z, honestly, at this point? And like, is there a way to replace that digitally? And is are they just not getting it? Like, how, how is that happening now in your in your world? So I'll be honest, I don't think there's any way to fully replace face-to-face human interaction. That's my approach. You know, I grew up in the you know late 70s, early 80s or mid-80s. And, you know, I'm, I'm used to working with people, meeting with people, spending time with people, hugging people. This is how I grew up. And, and so I, I don't think there's any way to really replace it. But I think we're finding more and more areas where you don't necessarily have to replace it you find a different dynamics and a different style of relationship to still execute your business without having to see people face-to-face or meeting them in person. And I think there's more and more of these opportunities to accelerate execution and find ways or pockets in your company to allow you to do that. When we founded Stoke, and again, this was pre-COVID, we built a company as a distributed organization. It's like people showed up to the office if they wanted Yes, I encourage them to come to the office one day a week. I never force them to. It's like one day a week, we're going to have a team lunch, show up for lunch. We'll have fun together. But it wasn't, hey, you got to show up to the office. You know, is having lunch with them, did that create anything? Absolutely. It created a bond that's, that's far stronger than anything else. Can a company allow itself to force people into creating that bond? Absolutely not. Not anymore. 
companies owe it to themselves to find the right balance between the people that are looking for that bond and want to create this long-term relationship and people that are strong executors but are not looking for that in their life right now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair and we'll kind of have to see how, how it progresses. One thing that I'm, that I'm kind of curious about is with other people that I've interviewed that have built successful marketplaces is how did you go about building this, this program? Because I think the one... The one thing that's always impressive about building a marketplace is there's that constant catch-22 where you need buyers to get sellers and sellers to get buyers. So I'd love to hear like how you got the idea for Stoke and then what those early days look like. So the idea for Stoke came from another company that I founded back in 2013. Completely different idea, but because we bootstrapped, we couldn't afford hiring full-time employees. So we started working with freelancers through Odesk and Fiverr back then. You know, me and my co-founder co-founded this company with me as well. We both grew up in corporates where we knew how to hire full-time employees. It was hard for us to understand how to start working with remote freelancers. But after we got through the uh, initial hurdles, it was just amazing how much it accelerated execution. All of a sudden, you have a need, and within 48 hours, you have someone starting to work on that. Might not be the perfect person, but within 48 hours, someone started attending to the need that you had. Within three months, we had 18 people working for us through these marketplaces, all the way through through India, Pakistan, to New York, and New Rochester, people that work with us for 48 hours on a specific task, and people that work with us for six or nine months, a few hours a month, fulfilling a need that we had. When I saw then just the opportunity of having a need and then having someone work on that versus working at corporate, when you have a need, you have to go talk to management, get approval for a headcount, go get the budget, have a job post, have a jar starts, you know, six months until you actually have anyone work. It was just the ability to execute was just tremendous. And so that's what I came up with. Well, we made a decision back then is we're not going to try and become a marketplace. There's When we started, there were 300 marketplaces. Now there's over a thousand marketplaces. We came to the understanding that the supply problem has almost been solved. There's millions and millions of freelancers across these these platforms, Upwork and Fiverr and TopTail and 99Design, one-hour translation. It's like there's really tremendous number of freelancers. The challenge is if you're in corporate, you're not going to open an account with a thousand marketplaces, not even with 20. I, as a someone who grew up in corporate, I couldn't care less if the freelancer came through freelancer.com or Upwork or, or Fiverr to that matter. I wanted the right person. But the company put in barriers between me and the ability to get freelancers because most people, most people in corporate don't have a credit card to go use on a marketplace. They don't get the approval. They need to get them to sign their own IP agreement. And so we set out to build a platform for the buyers, for the demand side only. We said, we're going to help you manage your existing freelancers and we're going to help you source. We're going to help you source through opening an ecosystem of agencies and marketplaces that want to surface their supply through Stoke. Just to understand one of the biggest differences that we had, most of the marketplaces are built on taking money from the freelancer. Anywhere between 5 and 20% depends on which marketplace you're looking at. We made a conscious decision. We're taking zero from the freelancers. Our entire revenue is coming from the companies. As someone who grew up in corporate said, you know, I'll take it from the corporate who can afford it, who has the clear need. I'm not going to take it from someone who's providing freelance services. And the reason was 
the best freelancers will not work on a platform that takes you know 10 or 20% from them. They can find a job elsewhere. So we're going to build it in a way that any freelancer wants to work through us, by all means, we'll connect them to the right companies. The companies will pay whatever it is to use the platform, but they're going to get 100% of the pay. They're going to get every dollar. Yeah, that's that's a really compelling model. One question I have is like, when did the business sort of reach this this critical mass, and what had to what had to happen there? You know, where you had corporations that culturally were against hiring freelance labor, and then things shifted. Was it just overnight with COVID, or like how did things kind of hit that flywheel? If that's the right way to describe it. Yeah, I think COVID uh, definitely helped people understand that this isn't a fun. This is here to stay. You know, I, I don't still think we're, we're seeing the full magnitude of the change that we're talking about. I think we're just in the beginning of seeing that flywheel. It hasn't happened in the scale that, I mean, it's working very well right now, but I think we're still just scratching the surface of the opportunity. If you think about it, the freelance economy in the United States alone is about $1 trillion, one, 1.2, depends on the research you want to tackle about 5% of GDP. Out of that, the share of wallet to the online marketplaces is sub 1%. And so the market is really, it's an infancy. We're going to see significant uptake over the next several years. It's always very much like, you know, Amazon. Amazon is gigantic and still only 10% of retail. Right. With that in mind, I'm going to try to stick this, land this question and it might, it might not work. (laughs) My experience with with freelance and sort of the challenge with it is that you get people. You, there's kind of like three different options. Let me know if you disagree with this or if you have a different experience. Obviously, but if you get good people, like people that that are A players or that are ambitious or or like are meant to do big things, there's kind of like three different options. There's one in which they are offshore and there's some sort of arbitrage and they're making a lot in their home country. You're, you know, etc. There's another where they eventually want to become entrepreneurs and start their own thing and they they scale out the freelance business into something else, or they're gunning for like a high paid full-time position in in a really cool company. So I'd love to hear hear your thoughts on that. Like it seems like the really good people are never going to be in stasis as self-identifying as freelancers. So you're kind of just like hanging on to them as until they can find a home in one of those places, unless it's an offshore route. So let me know if you agree or disagree. I just love, love to hear your thoughts. I think that was the case up until officially two decades ago. I think it's it's changing for the past two decades. And I think we're seeing more and more individuals are picking this as a way of life. And I think a lot of it had to do, has to do with, again, generational shift of people saying, I don't want your employer regulations, your pay bins, your performance reviews. Just want to be, I love coding or I love designing or I love this or that. Just don't want to be your employee. I'll provide you the services. You'll pay me for the services. But if I don't want to have this tight bond that you're trying to create, I want to work with more than a single employer. I'm not chasing the career ladder. I don't want to have to work five days a week in the same place. I like the fact that I'm working with two or three different companies at the same time. I have here in our graphic designer who's top-notch. I have a software developer here who was a VP R&D. Um, and made a decision that he doesn't want to chase a corporate ladder anymore. He wants to become a software developer. And he's working with us and two more companies in parallel. That's what he wants to do. He's not chasing a higher paid job. I offered him to be a full-time employee with us. 
He likes this model. It works well for him. He's building his portfolio. He's traveling. He's, you know, he's choosing the right technology he wants to work at. I think what we're missing is we're thinking through you know, the three options that you've laid out. There's been a significant change over the last, again, these two decades, the economic crisis that we've seen. Job security doesn't exist anymore. Anybody that says, I want a full-time job is going to give me security, that doesn't happen. We've seen it very clearly uh, sitting in the front row uh, when COVID hit. When COVID hit in Q1 of 2020, the first people that were let go were the freelancers. Absolutely, 100%. That's how companies generally react to an economic crisis. You let go of your contractors and freelancers. You protect your own employees. The thing is, the freelancers landed on their feet because they constantly work the network. They're more up-to-date with technology. They know how to hit the ground running. And so within weeks, they found their next gig. Someone took them because they realized there's, even if they had to take, well, you know, instead of taking $200 an hour, I'll take $170 an hour. I'll find my next job because I can provide value. What we've seen with, the, with employees, employees were let go, you know, two or three months after the freelancers were let go because there was a, a crunch there. Employees were like deer staring at the headlight. All of a sudden, well, I just spent the last four or five years here. My resume isn't even up to date. I didn't attend an interview in five years. It's like, where do I find my next job now? And then it took them a lot of time to go back into the market. Now, the market rebounded pretty fast, so that worked well for a lot of people. Had that not been the case, people would be out of a job. They didn't have a network. They never tried to get their skills up to date. And so if you want to get a future-proof career, Becoming a freelancer gives you a lot more flexibility and assurance because you got to stay up to date. You're constantly challenging yourself. You're seeing a lot of different approaches. You're learning a lot of new technologies and approaches. And again, if you find a company you fall in love with, fine, go work for them. Be full-time there if you, if you like it. That's always an option. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, How to Take Charge of Your Agency's Future Revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, you know, the freelancers are, are clearly, to use the Taleb parlance, you know, anti-fragile in a lot of ways, right? We're all kind of accumulating risk. The difference is, can you see it and are you out in front of it? Or is it something that's just building up over time? Like, I think I've heard it compared to if you work out and you throw the medicine ball up at a trainer, you know, you're going to get strong and eventually maybe you could lift a small car. But if you just have the small car dropped on you, all of a sudden, it's bad news, right? So that that all makes sense to me. There's a lot of of agency owners listening, you know, finding good talent all the time can be tough. Like what are some of those mistakes that you see maybe people that haven't used Stoke or that have tried other things like how are they approaching, you know, the freelance talent hire in the wrong ways? 
So there's two things uh, for agencies specifically. A, before even hiring, managing the life cycle of a freelancer within an agency, a significant back office overhead today for anyone running an agency. Agency have higher propensity to use freelancers. And then the entire life cycle of managing your existing freelancers, onboarding them, making sure you got the right legal documents in place, uh, managing their budget, handling their payouts, different currencies, different payment cycles, making sure they who owns IP, protecting your data, making sure that you submit the 1099s, refreshing your WAW9s, making sure that you properly classify them so you don't get into you know AB5, Prop 22, regulation, workforce means classification. And you know, there's constant changes both on federal and and state levels. I mean, in New York, as an example, where you're at right now, if you're working with freelancers, uh, legally, if you have a company of more than 15 employees, you have to get your freelancers through sexual harassment training. I can guarantee 80% of agencies don't have the mental bandwidth to with, deal with the operational overhead of making sure their freelancers have gone and passed sexual harassment training and tests, right? And so just in orchestrating that, that's where we start usually with companies. We're going to help you put a structure and process into how you're currently working with freelancers. Uh, and we're working with agencies, mid-sized agencies, working with 20 to 30 freelancers and saving them thousands of dollars a month just in the back office overhead of managing, dealing with the invoices, registering them, making sure that everything is up to date, making sure you track it correctly, making sure you keep your margins, all that. So that's one thing. Then it's, okay, how do you start sourcing more talent? And then I really think it really, A, depends on, on the type of business and the talent you're looking for. If you're looking for very simple freelance tasks to augment your team, it's like you want to generate content, um, you know, simple content. Generally, you tell people when you're starting to build your talent cloud to build your pool of freelancers, you don't need to commit to the freelancers from day one. Give them a small project to work on. So when I look for writers, usually I say, hey, I want a 500-word blog post on a topic, whatever. Here's some information. I send it to three freelancers. I get the writings. I write it, read it through. I see who, whose style I like the most. And I keep working with a person that I like the outcome the best. And so it cost me some dollars to get the right person. But all I ended up was burning $300 and saving time in, in not working with the wrong freelancer. So in some of these cases, you can make it as simple as that. Just give them a try. Just on the job training, uh, try it out. Uh, by the way, the company that does it best is WordPress. WordPress has a process. You want to work with WordPress. They're going to give you a project, a two-week project. At the end of the project, they're going to see the outcome. They're going to interview the people who worked with you and see it worked pretty well. We like the person. We want to keep working with them. They're going to give you a two-month project. After a two-month project, again, they're going to work, go through everybody who worked with you and said, do we want to keep working with this person? So instead of wasting time interviewing the person, it's like, let's just get to work together, see if this works. Now, if you're looking for a longer-term engagement, like you want you know, a brand director, you want a software developer, then obviously some interviews might come into the play, and then you start giving them small chunks of work. But I think the most important thing is to work and train that muscle constantly be in the market to give tasks to freelancers, see who works, see who you communicate with well, add them to your own talent pool. So when the need arises, you already have a pool of talent that you can leverage. One of the biggest mistakes we're seeing with companies, they're saying, well, when the need arises, I'll go find a freelancer. Guess what? When the need arises, A, the freelancers don't know you. The probability of them being available exactly at that time, the probability of you having time to interview them well, it's like, so start constantly build your pool. You want to be 
if you're in a creative agency, just as an example, you want to have a, a set of content writers, graphic designers, uh, uh, um, you know, video artists, whatever that is, that you've already went through and built into your own personal catalog and cloud. So when you need to create something, you say, okay, these guys are or gals already vetted and I want to work with them now. Yeah, that, that all makes a lot of sense. And I think that probably a lot of people were freaking out hearing all the compliance stuff they're probably not have haven't considered, you know, especially in states like New York and California and so on. Yeah, but by the way, it's not just in California, people should freak out. IRS has turned late 1099 submission into a $3 million penalty per company, not a small change. Uh, workforce misclassification now officially can turn into imprisonment. I don't think anybody really is turning into uh, getting into prison because of that, but uh, financial penalties are significant. There's more and more regulations coming into the pipe, and that's part of what we're trying to solve for companies because most companies don't have the capacity to deal with all these regulations by state, by, you know, DOL is different than state regulations. IRS is different from DOL. It's like just keeping track is complicated. We're trying to help companies save that hassle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just disincentivizes, you know, so much work from being done and so, so many people from being hired and then in this economy. So that all makes sense. I think the sourcing talent and keeping people engaged thing is, can be a hard problem, right? Because, you find a really good freelancer, you develop rapport, you get them up to speed on your on your stuff, and then the need, they fulfill the need. You know, you're on pause for a while, you need that person again, maybe they're not available, they're not available, then you have to do the same thing over and over again. So I don't know if there's any easy answers, but I'd love to hear how are you having how can people have their cake and eat it too? How can you keep the freelancer engaged and kind of on board without having to just repeat that process over and over? Well, you know, freelancers like any other thing are just human beings. So A, you got to show them respect. You got to understand their, their limits, time availability, um, and requirements. The basics of working with freelancers, the most important thing we're hearing from freelancers, number one, is pay them on time. It's insane to think about it, but the biggest complaint we hear from freelancers is the companies don't pay us on time. We got to chase them for 60 days until we see the payment, which is one of the things we help them sort out as well. So that's number one, pay them on time, respect them, respect the work they've done for you, help them get the money in time. B, smooth out the onboarding process. Again, we're talking to companies where and agencies where it's from the moment I want to work with a freelancer until I can actually start working, it's you know a four to six week process. You know, getting them becoming them an approved vendor, getting to sign their W9, getting some legal documents, like just how do you smooth that out? And then, you know, set the right expectation. If this is someone you want to work with and you think they're great at what they do slowly increase how much you're working with them and create some level of, hey, the next three months, I'm going to need you for XYZ. Is that going to work out? Don't surprise them unless you don't have a choice. Don't surprise them when they, hey, I really need you now. And, you know, put us in higher priority compared to your other customers. It's like, it's a business they're running, just like, you know, we're running a business. Yeah. And if I could just do a little sidebar and vent for a second, I've never understood the the withholding payment thing to get small amounts of interest or whatever, or to like float the money, because I just don't understand the cost benefit of it. You know, we, I experienced it on one side of the table where the clients that pay us late, it's clearly works out worse for them, right? We all, we ultimately get the money, but it just builds this kind of like slow resentment. And I'm sure it plays out like that way for everybody. So yeah, there's, there's two reasons for that. When you're working with large companies, I don't think it's the interest or anything. It's just 
their internal processes are slow. And so for them to make it simpler, so we're going to pay, have, we have a payment cycle once or twice a month. If you submitted your invoices past this date, then you're going to have to wait to the next. And we need two weeks. It's like, so they have this internal useless process, to be honest, in order to get things approved. And, you know, no bad intentions. There are older companies, uh, some of them are our customers that just say, why would we pay you so soon? We have internal processes that allow us to pay next 60. It's like, why do I need to? It's just, that's how we do business. No one really knows how to explain it. It's just, that's how we do business. Right. That's one thing. Most companies are not doing it for the interest. There are agencies, I can tell you that, have uh, have a real crunch. So an agency that um, needs to pay the freelancers, but their entire revenue is built on getting paid from their own customers. In some cases, if you're a small agency, you need the money in so you can pay the money out because your entire business is margin-based. It's not a good excuse, and it shouldn't be the freelancer's problem. But a lot of these small agencies have such a small take rate and margin that are not able to digest paying the freelancer before getting paid from the from the customer. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So one question I have is is what what is good for freelance and what's what's not? Like for example, I'm always having this push pull in my business about hiring an A player or hiring like a super accessible you know, easy to, to, to hire freelancer. And I shouldn't say that freelancers aren't a players, but for example, we recently hired a sales role, you know, for selling a complex service. And it was really hard. And, and I have friends that maybe sell a lower ticket item and they might be able to hire like a freelancer to 99 salesperson that can dial for dollars and do kind of basic stuff. But for us, where we have, you know, a multi-month sales cycle, I'd be very skeptical about hiring somebody that wasn't, you know, willing to embed with us for, you know, at least a year, two years, five years, whatever it is. At the same time, you know, there, yeah, like you said, there is really good freelance talent that might be interested in that sort of thing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what's the potential for for freelance work beyond the very um, kind of trade person, technical stuff like developer, designer, et cetera, if that question makes sense? Um, I, I think it's a valid question. I think there's more and more cases where you can, work with freelance talent. I don't think freelancers, uh, I was about to say leadership positions, you know, like, you know, a specific salesperson. Although we are seeing growth in fractional CFOs, fractional CMOs roles, which are kind of freelancers. In a lot of cases, you need that expertise. And so if you tell me I need someone to build out the sales process for six months, I would tell you, you know, that's a great job for a freelancer. Maybe you like him and they'll turn into a full-time employee. If you're looking for a sales rep, you know, I actually you know that think about it, I did it. I did it twice uh, in Stoke. I had a guy that I knew was head of SDR for my previous company who worked full time somewhere else. I was like, look, I'm starting to build out a team. I need someone to help me with setting up the call scripts, starting to do the initial dials until I set up the sales team. And I got him on board and he worked with us for, I think, three or four months. And then when I started scaling the team, I brought another guy pretty damn expensive, I have to tell you. It's like probably 2x what I generally would pay. But he's done it like four or five times. That's what he does. He goes into companies in their second or third year. He knows how to build the sales machine, how to qualify the deals, how to run fast, how to shorten the call from a 40-minute call to a 20-minute call. It's like all these things, interviewing people, recruiting the sales team, super valuable in accelerating processes. Now, from day one, we've aligned that he's not going to be here long-term. This is a three to six months engagement. 
worked well for both sides. And, you know, started off, didn't work out. I would tell him to not continue after 30 days. So that, that was always an option. I think in any corner we're at, there is an opportunity to bring on a consultant, contractor, freelancer, to help you augment what you're doing and pull in some of their experience. We got to understand that when you're getting a full-time employee, you're getting someone that has seen three, four, five, six companies in their past, right? Some of them worked well, better than others. And some of them, they were juniors. When you're bringing in a fractional CFO, CMO, CRO, these are people that have worked with 15 to 20 companies in the last five years. The processes, how to embed your CRM, how to get the right call center, how to qualify the costs. Like you get so much knowledge poured into the company that becomes an accelerator to anything that you're doing. And so, I, and again, my head of sales is a full-time, my salespeople are full-time. I'm not saying it's one, uh, it's this or that. It's find the right timing to what is required. Right, right. That that makes sense. And then I think part of that is also finding out what motivations people have, right? If somebody's wants to be a full-time freelancer forever, that's different than somebody that is doing it to get experience or for a million other motivations. Yeah. And you can always, always make the bet. I'm going to find someone who's a freelancer who's dreading what they're doing is telling me I'm not going to be your employee. And if I'm able to build relationships with them and get them to fall in love with the business over the next three to six months, maybe I can turn them into an employee. And if not, then I gain their knowledge. So I think that it allows us to be a lot more open-minded and run on the job training. You hire a full-time person, right? To run sales, as an example. The cost of going wrong is tremendous. Is horrendous, to be honest. When you hire the wrong sales leader, you just killed a full year off the company. That's pretty much it. It sounds very bad, but that's... It took you three to six months to hire them. You paid some recruiter somewhere um, or headhunter to get them through the door, right? They're expensive. Salespeople are expensive. The first three months, it's like, well, you know, you kind of give them slack. It's like, well, they're just getting started. They're learning the business. I understand why they're not selling. Second quarter, okay, they were, I expect them to start generating. Third quarter, something isn't working well. We just spent the last year. Now, the company hasn't progressed in that period. You ended up spending a lot of money on this person because it's a full-time hire. And it's like, okay, what do I do now? Starts starts from scratch. Expensive, risky, you know, 30% of hires are not working out and are leaving within the next three to six months. So there's a lot of risk built into that process. So I'll give you the flip side. You get a freelancer. Hey, we both understand you should be executing within the next 30 to 60 days. You're a freelancer. You hit the ground running. Otherwise, there's nothing to do with you. I expect to see results very quickly. Small results, but start progressing. I'm not going to onboard you. I'm not trying to make you into employee. I want to show progress, small progress very quickly. It works well. Great. Let's start building on that and, and get you to do more of what you're doing, build around it. Um, and if it's not working out after 30 days or 60 days, get someone else. And so it's a different approach. Doesn't fit every business, doesn't fit every salesperson, but it's an approach that Every company, every crossroad should evaluate. Yeah, and, and I definitely see the upside as long as both parties are on the same page. Obviously, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Kind of, kind of getting towards the end of our time. If we can just do a subject change sidebar, you know, it sounds like you've you've sold the business for for 110 million to Fiverr, which is pretty awesome. So, how the hell do you do that? How can we do it too? <laughs> a, you don't plan for it. 
that's the first thing that I can say. You know, I never thought I'll sell the company within two and a half years. I've put in the right infrastructure, what I thought was the right infrastructure, to build a, a lasting business that will keep growing. And, you know, when people ask me, you know, do you want to get acquired? Do you want... I didn't know. You don't control valuations and you don't control getting acquired. You control running a business. You know, the two tips I can give, one is focus on the business and B, constantly work out your your network. You never know where opportunity is going to rise from. And so from day one, I constantly kept building and enriching my network. So I kept talking to all the VCs, even those that didn't invest in us throughout the cycles. Fiverr, as an example, I worked with the team here, had conversations about the industry and trajectories and where the business is heading from day one. We used to meet like every every other quarter, just brainstorming, you know, and we're close enough for them to understand that we've, we're onto something interesting enough for them. Um, they wanted to join it, investing in our A round. And, and again, things got closer to a point where they felt comfortable enough personally with me to say, hey, you know, I think the space is interesting enough. The market is heading in the right direction. And we think we can build something significant with Jahar. That's how things came to be. When people ask me, you know, oh, so is Fiverr and Upper going to buy you? I was like, Probably not. They're going after a completely different industry. They're going after SMBs. They're going after consumers. We're going after corporates. Again, no one at that point made the realization that you know they're going to build a B2B business or they will go after B2B. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things to dig into there. I guess like what what do you think changed for them and what do you think was their their motivation at the time? They saw that what we're going after was a real business. When we started off, it's like, hey, you know, Fiverr was built for scale. A lot of buyers, small buyers, buying a lot of things very quickly. You know, one-click buy, very like an Amazon experience. Like it's it's almost like an e-com site. I want something very simple. I want to, you know, I want a logo. I want you know a landing page. Such transactional business. Over time, they start realizing, well, if we want to get larger deals, more engaged, like we need to grow, go up market. What does going up market mean? How up market are you going? Uh, and I think that happened around the same time that our business started taking off and it started seeing, hearing customers talking about us. And I think that's where, where, where things shaped off. You know, being involved with acquisitions myself, the market changes, companies need to find new growth engines. Uh, not necessarily what you thought three years ago is true today. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you think that that's kind of like a, a macro shift towards to make it to oversimplify a quality over quantity. I think we see that with our clients a lot, kind of the shift towards smaller numbers, long tail going up market could be one, one way to think of it. Do you think there's something bigger going on there? Or do you think it, this was more specific to, to them? I don't think it's specific to them. I just think it's generic. I, I think it's generic for the market. I think any company, again, I've seen companies going from B2B to B2C, from selling to specific verticals to other verticals. Every company is constantly looking for a new growth engine. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I think is interesting about your story is we we interview a lot of people that have done massive successful acquisitions and that sort of thing. And there's not one way. We talk to people that have been very strategic and deliberate. And like from day one, they're like, we want to get acquired. Uh, And then people like yourself that you know, more like a lot of us just focusing on on running a good business and then the opportunities come along. I think the one the one interesting commonality that I'm seeing though is that pretty much uh, the people that have pulled it off have built those relationships sooner rather than later. And it's not just like a find the broker, you know, shop us around 
kind of deal. And oftentimes those deals end up with the seller being less than happy <laughs> from what I've seen. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's kind of an interesting thing to point out. Yeah. No, I agree. I, you know, I think acquisitions are super complicated. I've been on the acquiring side, on the acquired side. I think that, you know, it can be its own episode on what makes acquisition successful. There's a lot of different things, but I can be very blunt about what makes acquisitions fail. I think the number one thing is most companies invest all their energies into making the acquisition itself work, getting the deal done and not getting the post-acquisition successful. And I think that's more where most companies fail. Yeah, I think that's really useful to people that might be thinking about it and, and heading in that direction. One question I've been asking lately is just, uh, what are you optimistic about? We're living in, uh, you know, the, the past month has had a lot of reasons for pessimism, not optimism with everything happening in, in Eastern Europe. The changes we're seeing are providing a lot of tremendous opportunity for people that in communities and countries that were underserved, third world countries, people that were less fortunate. You know, if you think about it, half the world's population is living with less than $100 a month or $10 a month, whatever. So it's like small fees. I think this globalization and access gives a lot of uh, potential to people in, that were less fortunate so far. I think with that, I think it's generating significant questions and challenges to communities in the Western world where it's like, why would I buy services from someone in New York if I can buy similar services from someone in Sri Lanka for 10% of the price, as an example? So I think there's I think there's reason to optimism with a flat world provides a lot of new opportunity for people in need. And with that, it creates new challenges. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Probably a whole other episode on on the, the global element of that. And hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to do it. So Shahar, I guess beyond that, how can people follow what you're up to and get in touch and all that good stuff? You can find me on LinkedIn, Shahar Arez. You can follow our, our company. We're at stoketalent.com. We're on LinkedIn as well. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Happy to. We have our podcast, which you're welcome to listen to as well. Uh, it's called How I Scale My Team. So we're all over. Awesome, man. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Shahar. Thanks, Dan. It's been great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.